Good morning, Grace. I'm in a good mood today. I shouldn't be because I only slept about four hours, but I'm in a good mood, and there are two reasons why. Um, I don't know if you watch MMA, but if you do and you didn't find out the results of last night's fight, this is my courtesy moment to let you plug your ears real fast. But last night at UFC 196, my boy, Nate Diaz, representing the 209 from Stockton, shut the mouth of that arrogant, cocky, boastful Irishman, Conor McGregor, and I was thrilled, and I screamed like a teenage girl, and I'm not ashamed of that, so it was a good night in the Magnus house, Um, very excited, that's one of the reasons I couldn't sleep, it's had so much adrenaline, so much excitement, one of the reasons I'm happy, but even greater than that is the fact that our older brother, Jesus, shut the mouth of Satan on the cross. And when it looked like he was down and he was taking a beating, he pulled out a rear naked choke and made the devil tap. And so for that, I am in in a good mood. And so we're going to be talking about that in our passage in Hebrews chapter 2 today. Legend has it that the great reformer Martin Luther had a dream or a vision in which Satan came to accuse him of all of his sins. Satan came to Luther and said, Luther, how dare you pretend to be a reformer of the church? Luther, let your memory do its duty. Let your conscience do its duty. You have committed this sin. You have been guilty of that sin. You have omitted this duty. You have neglected that duty. Let your reform begin in your own bosom. How dare you attempt to be a reformer of the church? And then Luther replied to the devil, Take up the paper that lies on the table and write down all the sins with which you have now charged me. And if there be any additional, append them to." Satan, of course, was delighted and rejoiced to have the opportunity uh, to accuse Luther of his many sins. So he took up the pen and ink and wrote a long and painful roll of the real sins of Luther. And Luther said to him, have you written the whole? And Satan answered, yes, and a black and dark catalog it is. And sufficient to, deter, sufficient to deter you from making any attempt to reform others till you have first purified and reformed yourself. And then Luther said to him, take up the pen and write as I shall dictate to you. My sins are many. My transgressions in the sight of an infinitely holy God are countless as the hairs of my head. In me there dwelleth no good thing but Satan... After the last sin you have recorded, write the announcement which I shall repeat from 1 John 1.7. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And there is a legend too that Luther was being pestered by the devil one night and got so frustrated that he threw an inkwell at him. He was tired of the constant uh, barrage of accusations from the devil that he threw an inkwell at him and it supposedly splattered all over the wall. And I suppose you can do that too because that's exactly what our big idea is all about today. When the devil reminds you of your sins, throw a bunch of ink at him. 
When the devil reminds you of your sins, throw a bunch of ink at him. I suppose you could throw a real bottle of ink at him if you want, but that might ruin your walls or your carpet. So the ink that I'm suggesting you throw at the devil when he throws your sins in your face is the ink of Scripture, the ink of God's Word. Your Bible is full of verses and promises, and they are printed in ink. And when the devil accuses you, throw God's Word at him. And I think that's the practical application that flows out of the verses that we are looking at today. And I think it's the pastoral advice that the pastor writing the book of Hebrews would have given to his people. The preacher of the book of Hebrews, who I think is a pastor, I think he would have told his audience to throw Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, into the devil's face when he accused them. Let's read them now. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Now, we spent the last two weeks looking at the incarnation of Jesus, and now we move on further in verse 14 to see the reasons why Jesus shared in our flesh and blood. But before we dive into the verses, I want to show you kind of the structure of this paragraph here. The the preacher of Hebrews will tell us at the beginning that Jesus was a human being, and then he'll give a few reasons why, and then he'll end by saying that Jesus helps us. And he follows this pattern twice in verses 14 through 18. He will say, Jesus shared in our humanity, verse 14, and then in verses 14 and 15, he'll tell us the reason why, so that he might destroy the devil, and so that he might deliver us, and then he ends in verse 16 and says, Jesus helps us. And then he comes back to that same pattern beginning in verse 17, and he says, Jesus shared in our humanity, and then he gives several reasons in verse 17, so that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest. And so that he could make propitiation for our sins. Or so that he could turn aside God's wrath and anger at our sins. And then he ends by saying that Jesus helps us. So that's the pattern that's here in this paragraph. Today we're going to look at the first section. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the other. But in verses 14 and 15, we have the two purpose clauses here that explain what Jesus came to do. One, he came to destroy the devil. And two, he came to deliver us and to liberate us and to free us. And these are the ways then that Jesus helps us. He destroys the devil and he delivers us from the fear of death. Now let's talk about the first one there. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus came to destroy the devil through his life, death, and resurrection. And the Apostle John tells us something very similar in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He says, For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So one of the reasons that Jesus came and took on human flesh and blood was to destroy the devil. And he did this primarily through his death on the cross. Jesus went into death. He was plunged into the realm of death, Satan's realm, and he conquered death. Now, 
The fact that death is conquered doesn't mean, though, that death went on a vacation because people still die. We know, as 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And it doesn't mean that the devil was completely destroyed in that he no longer exists. It doesn't mean that the devil is no longer doing his business because you know from his experience that the devil is alive and well. So what does it mean that the devil was destroyed through the death of Jesus? What does it mean that the one who had the power of death was destroyed? Well, it does not mean that Christians won't die because we still do. It doesn't mean that that we have been delivered from death so that we escape death somehow so that we no longer die because we still die. So what it means is that if you are a Christian and you are in union with Christ and your sins are forgiven, then the devil is rendered powerless in your life, meaning he can no longer use his main weapon against you. And what is his main weapon? I found what John Piper said to be very helpful. He said this, Now, how does that render powerless the one who had the power of death, the devil? It doesn't mean Christians don't die a physical death. What it means is that the only weapon the devil can use to destroy us in death is our sin. Nobody goes to hell because they are oppressed by the devil or even possessed by the devil. Nobody goes to hell because they are harassed by the devil or get shot at by the devil or given hallucinations by the devil. These are all smoke screens to hide the one deadly power in Satan's artillery, namely unforgiven sin. The only reason anybody goes to hell is because of their own sin. And all Satan can do is fight like hell to keep you sinning and to keep you away from the one who forgives sin. Because if your sin is forgiven and the wrath of God Almighty is turned away from you, then the devil is disarmed. The one deadly, lethal tactic he has is to accuse you of sin and keep you sinning and to keep you away from Christ who forgives sin and removes the wrath of God. If your sins are forgiven and the wrath of God is removed from you and you stand righteous before God in Jesus Christ by faith and God is for you and not against you, then the devil is rendered powerless. He cannot destroy you. So in sum, the connection between verses 14 and 17 shows that the way Christ renders powerless the devil is by making propitiation for our sins, which shows that the only lethal weapon in the artillery of Satan is our own sin. The only lethal weapon the devil has in his artillery is our sin. And if you're an unbeliever, that's a big problem. Your unforgiven sins are your ticket to hell. Unforgiven sin is a ticket to hell. Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Physical death, yes, but then that leads to eternal death if you don't repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. But for Christians... Those who are in union with Jesus, the good news of the gospel is that our sins are forgiven. We have been imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are blameless in God's eyes, and his wrath at our sin is gone. It has been removed. 
Yes, we still die. Yes, we still experience death. But we do not experience eternal death in hell because we are forgiven. But that doesn't mean that the devil won't use this one weapon. Reminding us of our sin against us. This is his primary weapon, I think. At least that's how he deals with me. The weapon of choice that the devil uses on me is to remind me of my sins, to remind me of all of my shortcomings, to remind me of all of my mistakes, to harass me and to try to make me feel like I'm under condemnation. And what I need to do in those moments when he harasses me is the same thing that I would tell you when you find yourself in that situation. When the devil reminds you of your sins, throw a bunch of ink at him. When the devil harasses you, throw scripture back in his face. Throw some of the ink that's printed in your Bible back at him. Throw Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 back at him and tell him that Jesus defeated him. Or you could read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, which gives another reason why Jesus came. And this one is very personal for all of us. So let me read it to you now. Verse 15, And to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Every human being is in bondage, in bondage to sin, born in bondage to sin, in bondage of the fear of death. Every human being lives as a slave to the fear of death in some way. Some people are just scared to death to die. It haunts them. And others, I think, simply ignore this. They turn a deaf ear to the reality of death by staying busy and being distracted by all that glitters in this world. So we're all born slaves to sin. And I think slaves to death, it's slave to the fear of death. And Jesus came to set us free from that. Now, why do we fear death? Here's why. Because death is the most perverted thing that can ever happen to you. Death is the most perverted and twisted thing that can ever happen to a human being. To die is to experience the most perverse thing in this world. Why? Because death separates our spirits from our bodies. Death pulls us and rips us apart. Human beings are made up of two parts, the material and the immaterial. The material is our body with all that that has, and the immaterial is our spirit or our soul, if you prefer that word. Our body is material, physical, flesh and blood, and our spirit is the immaterial part. But we are both. We are made up of two parts, material, immaterial, body and spirit. And Jesus came to save our spirits. He came to save our souls. But he came to save our bodies as well. He came to save all of us. So that means that our salvation is not complete until we are resurrected and standing on the new earth. Salvation is not just about going to heaven when you die. It's about the coming together again of your body and spirit in resurrection on the new earth. Salvation is about the redemption of your spirit or your soul 
and your body. The resurrection of Jesus is a very physical resurrection. That's why I said reach out and touch the holes. I'm, I'm here. I'm not a ghost. It's a very physical resurrection. Why? Why is the resurrection of Jesus very physical? Why is it not just spiritual? Why was he not like a ghost or a mirage like on Scooby-Doo or something? Why was it very, very physical? Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus came to do what Adam undid when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. Jesus came to share in our flesh and blood and to live the life that we could never live because we are all sinners. I think that's rain, right? It's like, what is that? It's the devil trying to distract me. Well, guess what, devil? Jesus came to share in our flesh and blood and to die the death that we all deserve because we are all sinners. That's why the resurrection is very physical. Resurrection restores and fixes what Adam broke. And so in Genesis 2, 7, it says that God made man from the ground. He came out of the ground. Adam came out of the dust. That means to be a human being means that we, we come out of the dust. Therefore, the appropriate relationship between human beings and dirt is that we come out of it. We come out of dust so that we can put over the earth, be put over the earth and rule and have dominion. That's God's design for human beings. We come out of dust and we rule. Out of dust, ruling over it. That's what Adam was supposed to be doing in the garden. He was supposed to come out of dust and rule and have dominion over the earth, over the dust. But we all know the story. A talking snake showed up and started asking questions, and then everything changed. Adam sinned and disobeyed God, and death, both physical and spiritual, entered this world. Then the power of death was put into the devil's hands after Adam sinned. All under the sovereignty of God, of course, but death began its reign at that moment. And death puts us back where we don't belong, in the ground, in the dust, six feet under. And that's why we fear death, because it puts us where we don't belong. We don't belong in the ground. We were made to rule over the ground, to come out of dust and to have dominion and rule. But death puts us back where we don't belong. And that's why death is the most perverted and twisted thing that could ever happen to a human being. Why is death the most perverted and twisted thing that can happen to a human being? Because death puts you back into the ground, out of relationship with the ground. Death takes you from a position of having dominion and ruling over the earth to having the earth rule over you. And that's why we fear death. Because we have no power in ourselves to keep this from happening. We cannot stop death. We cannot prolong life. We all die. We all have a date with death. And death has plans on that date to put us back into the ground. But we weren't made as human beings to be put underground. We don't belong in the ground we were made to come out of the dirt and to rule over it. And so the million-dollar question then is, how do we get restored to that proper relationship with the ground, with the earth? The answer is resurrection. 
It's through the death of Jesus when he destroyed the one who had the power of death. We get restored to that proper relationship of ruling over the earth by trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We get delivered from the fear of death because Jesus descended into death and came alive on the other side. We get delivered from the fear of death because through death, Jesus rendered the devil powerless over us. And so in the resurrection, because we are in union with Christ, we will be brought out of the dust again and restored to a proper relationship with the dust. We will rule and reign with Jesus on the new earth. And that's what salvation is. Resurrection is Genesis 2, 7, all over again. Resurrection is happening all over, Genesis 2, 7 is happening all over again in resurrection. So when we die, we are dead, we are out of relationship with the earth, our body will remain here, but our spirit when we die, when we're ripped apart and our body is put where it doesn't belong, our spirit will go to be with Jesus and we will be in total bliss and joy to live as Christ, to die as gain. We will be with Jesus in total bliss and joy, free from pain and sorrow and agony, but we will be disenfranchised in that moment. We will not be complete. Our loved ones, our friends, family members who are Christians, every Christian who has gone before us, whose body went back down into the ground and whose spirit went to be with Jesus, they are in complete and total bliss and joy, never-ending happiness, but they're disenfranchised right now. They know this is not complete. We will not be complete until we are resurrected. Yes, we will be with Jesus, but we will not be ultimately content. We will be waiting and yearning. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 5, we'll be yearning for our new glorified bodies. We'll be waiting for the day, the date that we will have with resurrection when we will come out of the dust again, the way it was supposed to be before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned, and our spirit will be reunited with our body. So Christianity is not about your spirit leaving your body when you die and then it's over. It's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about experiencing resurrection and living eternally on the new earth in a new, glorified, very physical body. And the only way for that to come about is for the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, to share in our flesh and blood, to come to the earth, to take on human flesh, and to live the way that Adam was supposed to live in the garden, and to pay the penalty of our sins, to bring us back to God, and then for him to be ripped apart in death, have his spirit go be with his Father in heaven, have his body go back into the ground, and then for him to come back out of the grave in resurrection. Jesus came to live the life that we could never live because we are sinners. He came to die the death that we all deserve because we are sinners. And it is through that death that the devil is destroyed. And so Jesus experienced death. This same separation of spirit and body that we will experience one day. Jesus experienced the most perverted thing that can happen to a human being. Jesus had his spirit ripped out of his body. He experienced the perversion of death for us. 
and he died and his body was in the grave for three days while his spirit went to be with his father in heaven, which is what he told the thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. His spirit was in paradise with his father. His body was in the tomb. Death separated Jesus' spirit from his body and death will separate our spirits from our bodies when we die. Death separates. That's what it does. And that's why death is the most perverted thing that you can ever experience. Death is the most twisted, most perverted, most warped, most distorted, most corrupt, most abnormal thing that can ever happen to you. Why? Because death rips you apart. It tears you apart. It puts your spirit immaterial part over here and your body material part over here. And you weren't made to be ripped up like that. You were made to be part material, part immaterial, body and spirit united together. These two parts to live in unity. But some Christians won't experience this perversion and perversion, and that's why I say that death is the most perverted thing that can happen to you. Some Christians will be alive when Jesus returns, and they will experience instant glorification. They will not experience this being ripped apart, but the majority of humans get ripped into at death. The majority of human beings experience the perversion of death. But the hope of Christianity is that believers in Jesus will be resurrected and spirit and body will be joined together again just the way God designed it with Adam and Eve. God took us out of dirt. Death puts us back into dirt. But when Jesus returns, God will take us out of dirt never to experience the perversion of death again. So salvation is Genesis 2-7 all over again. The most perverted thing that can happen to you is to be ripped apart at death. The most twisted and perverted thing that can happen to you is to have your body and spirit ripped apart and separated from each other. But the hope of the gospel is that because Jesus experienced the perversion of death for us and was raised from the dead, we too can be raised to new life. Jesus is alive and we can say confidently that one day we will live too. But until then... Death comes along and says to us, I'm going to do something to you that is so perverted and so twisted and so warped and so distorted and so abnormal. I'm going to rip your spirit and body apart from each other. And that's why we fear death, because we're ripped apart. But in the gospel, Jesus comes along and he rubs hope into the face of death. Jesus comes along and grabs death by the neck, by the scruff of the neck, and shoves death, shoves death's faith, face into the hope of his resurrection. Jesus gets right into the face of death and rubs his resurrection into the face of death. And then Jesus says to death, I am going to undo the perversion that you have caused, and I am going to fix what is broken. Jesus came to free us from our slavery to the fear of death. Revelation 1.5 says Jesus frees us from our sins. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Sin leads to death, physical death, and then ultimately eternal death in hell if we are not united to Jesus. But if we are freed from our sins then we are freed from fear, the fear of eternal death. 
Jesus came to deliver you through his death, to set you free, to set you free from your fear of death, to set you free from wondering, am I really saved? Am I really forgiven? When I die, would I really spend eternity with Jesus? Will I be resurrected? Jesus came to free you from all of those fears. So there's no need to fear anymore. No need to fear death. No need to fear dying. There's no need to fear the devil. No need to fear demons. There's no need to fear at all. Martin Luther said, why should you fear? Why should you be afraid? Do you not know that the prince of this world has been judged? He is no Lord, no prince anymore. You have a different, a stronger Lord, Christ, who has overcome and bound him. Therefore, let the prince and God of this world look sour, bare his teeth, make a great noise, threaten, and act in an unmannerly way. He can do no more than a bad dog on a chain, which may bark, Run here and there and tear at the chain, but because it is tied and you avoid it, it cannot bite you. So the devil acts toward every Christian. Therefore, everything depends on this, that we do not feel secure, but continue in the fear of God and in prayer. Then the chained dog cannot harm us. But this chained dog may at least frighten him who would be secure and go ahead without caution, although he may not come close enough to be bitten. When that chained dog starts barking at you, remember the practical application of Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. When the devil reminds you of your sins, throw a bunch of ink at him. You see, Grace, the only power the devil has is the threat of unforgiven sin. That's the power that he has over unbelievers. But if you are in union with Christ, you are forgiven. Your sins don't belong to you anymore. They belong to Jesus now. And Jesus has triumphed completely over the devil through death. Paul says something along these lines in Colossians 2. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Your sins, Christian, the record of your sins, the record of what you did last week was nailed to the cross. It's gone. And all the demonic forces in the universe were disarmed. So all the devil can do is harass you because of your sins. And he will. Read Ephesians 6. It's there for a reason. There's a list of spiritual armor for a reason. We still wrestle with spiritual forces. And one of the devil's favorite weapons to attack believers is reminding us of our sins. But God knows nothing of the list of your sins. But the devil does and he has a copy of it and he knows what a black and dark catalog it is and he loves to rub your face in it but you have an older brother Jesus who loves to help you Jesus doesn't come to help angels the verse says he helps the offspring of Abraham and if you are a Christian then you are an offspring of Abraham New Testament believers 
are Abraham's children because we are united by the Spirit through faith alone to the same Savior, Jesus, who justified Abraham by grace alone through faith alone. So understand this. The devil says one thing about your sins and Jesus says something completely different. The devil says, I can't believe you did that. You call yourself a Christian and you did that? If people knew what you were like, if people knew what you do, what you say, what you think, they'd never want to be around you. Don't you feel ashamed for that? I can't believe Jesus loves you so much and that's how you act? Really? I bet God the Father is mad at you. Oh, he's had it by now. You've exhausted his patience and grace. You can't go to him right now. He doesn't want to see you. He's holy and you're a rotten, filthy sinner. You should feel very bad about yourself. The devil says one thing about your sins and Jesus says something completely different. Jesus says, what sin? Oh, They don't belong to you anymore. They belong to me. And I threw them into the bottom of the sea. Don't drag a net through the sea of forgetfulness. They're gone. I remember your sins no more. I can't remember them. I cannot remember them. I cannot remember your sins anymore. The devil says one thing about your sins And Jesus says something completely different. Jesus says, it is finished. Jesus says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Jesus says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jesus says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Jesus said all of those things in his word. So take all of that ink and throw it in the devil's face. But not only does God forgive us of all of our sins, he gives us Jesus' righteousness. He declares us righteous. He gives us Jesus' obedience. The obedience of Jesus is our record. The obedience of Jesus, never sinning once, that's your record, Christian. That's how God sees you. God looks at you and says, you've never sinned. The obedience of Jesus is our record. As Hebrews 10, 7 says, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, the preacher of Hebrews in chapter 10 quotes Psalm 40 and says that this is Jesus speaking. So what Jesus is saying in Psalm 40 and what Jesus is saying in Hebrews 10 is that everything written in the law, all of the ink of the law, Jesus says, I've done it all. All of the ink that is 
spilled in the law. Jesus says, I obeyed it completely, and now that record is yours. This is your record now, Christian. Your record is that you have completely obeyed God's law. Your record says, perfect. So on that final day, when your name is called, and God looks up your name, it says, oh, it says here, perfect. Perfect. Enter the joy of your master. There's no fear when you stand before Jesus. You will be vindicated, Christian, when you stand before him. When you stand before him, your record will say, blameless. When you stand before him, your record will say, it is finished. And Satan cannot accuse you on that day of unforgiven sin. He can and will for unbelievers, but not you, Christian. And it's all because of Jesus. And I think that's some pretty good news to think about before we eat the Lord's Supper together, don't you? Let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father, we thank you for the gospel. May it stir our hearts more than any sporting event, more than something we read online, more than something our cute kids might say or do, more than whatever ice cream we love to eat. May the gospel that we hear about week in and week out here at this church, God, may it never get stale to us. May it always, may we always receive it as the good news that it is. And it is good news, Father, what your Son has done for us and on our behalf. Would you rub it down into the nooks and crannies of our heart again this morning? Would you rub the gospel down into our pores so that we're transformed and so that we go tell other people about this great Savior who loves us so much? Forgive us of our sins, Father. They are so many. What a dark catalog it is. What a long catalog. Volumes. Forgive us and thank you for the righteousness of your Son. May we celebrate you and enjoy you as we eat this meal together. In Jesus' name, amen.